We didn't start the fire. It was always burning since the world's been turning. We didn't light it, but we tried to fight it. Hear all about the fight in the danger zone. Amazing stories, incredible music, terrible singing about military history. I'm Paul. Sit back and relax if you can. If you're driving, don't even think of changing stations. You know how dangerous it is to take your hands off the wheel and your eyes off the road. In Don McNaughton's book about his father's wartime experiences, when he was the mid-upper gunner on a Lancaster bomber during World War II, we're told in Lucky Pommy Bastard, he talks about the night, sometime after his father had passed away, that he and his mother watched a program on TV about the British bombing campaign against Germany in World War II. His mother had told him she found it helpful to understand more about her late husband, but she said she was still confused about something that had obviously troubled her husband from his war years and that never left his subconscious. So after the program had finished, she said to Don, I have some understanding of why your father could be short-tempered, but what was behind the many nightmares he suffered for years when he woke up in a sweat, shouting, Corkscrew! Corkscrew! Don wrote, Mum had never asked Dad, or he didn't tell her, what his nightmares were about, and it was the TV program that at last informed her that the term was used when citing a night fighter, to get the pilot to take evasive action. This episode also gave me some further insight into how my mother dealt with her war experience and with Dad, or rather how she could box those memories and experiences up, store them away, and ignore them for so many years. Jeez, Mum, if you'd asked any of your sons, even me at 12 years old... They could have all told you what Corkscrew was all about and maybe made life a tad easier. Let me tell you about what his father meant by Corkscrew and why that was a word that he would start screaming out during the night until his dying day. This is what was recorded in the combat report for a mission flown on 16, 17 December 1943 by Vic. Trumbull's aircraft when they had an encounter with the night fighter. At 20.08 hours, 19,000 feet over the target, heading 062 degrees north, airspeed 165 LAS, mid-upper gunner, sighted JU-88, astern 500 yards up. When sighted, the enemy aircraft was starting to attack, the mid-upper gunner gave order to corkscrew port and rear and mid-upper gunners opened fire. The enemy aircraft followed through and opened fire, giving three bursts, but was unable to get guns to bear. Both mid-upper and rear gunners gave several short bursts, but could observe no hits. Enemy aircraft using wing machine guns, but no tracer was used. Enemy aircraft held off at 500 yards throughout Corkscrew and then broke away to starboard down and was not seen again. 
The machine guns carried on a Lancaster bomber were unlikely to seriously damage a German night fighter. They would encourage a bit of caution, but that was about all. The main job of a mid-upper machine gunner like Roy was, and the tail gunner, was to spot enemy fighters and then give instructions to the pilot to corkscrew to starboard, right, or port, left. The intention was to throw off the attacking fighters so that they could not launch an effective attack. Don in Lucky Pommy Bastard tells us about the corkscrew manoeuvre. Corkscrew was the major bomber manoeuvre to avoid enemy night fighters, and the gunner's main role in the aircraft was not to shoot down enemy aircraft, but to sight them early and instruct the pilot over the intercom with corkscrew port, corkscrew, etc. The nautical terms being used ever since the development of aircraft. At this instruction, the pilot would aggressively throw the aircraft into evasive action. If the gunners actually engaged a fighter by returning fire, then they were usually already in big trouble. The title Observer Gunner originally used for this gunner role was probably a more appropriate term. Okay, that was a failed attack. Now let me tell you about what happened when a night fighter got to make a good attack. This description appears in the Len Dayton novel Bomber. The account describes an attack launched by an undetected German night fighter on a Lancaster bomber. The night fighter was commanded by a pilot officer, a fictional pilot officer by the name of Lovenherz. The quote begins, Lovenherz hardly increased speed at all. He inched underneath the huge airplane very, very slowly. He looked up through the top of his cabin and could see every detail of it. He let its red-hot exhaust pipes pass back overhead until he was exactly underneath the bomber. The two planes rode through the night in close formation until in the classic manoeuvre of the night fighter, Lovenherz pulled the control column back with all his strength his nose went up closer and closer to the great bomber. The fighter shuddered as it neared stalling point, hanging on its propellers, thrashing like a drowning man, but suspended and stationary for a moment. Over him came the bomber. Hrido, said Lovenherz, to tell Bach what he was about to do, and he pressed his gun buttons and raked its belly from nose to tail. The gunfire lit both aircraft with a gentle greenish light. Lovenherz squinted to preserve his night vision as much as possible. The Richards, the name for this model of German night fighter, were nothing but high-powered gun platforms, and the demented hammering of the big cannons deafened the flyers, even through their closely fitted helmets, just as the smell of cordite got into their nostrils in spite of their oxygen mass, working exactly by the instruction book, Lovenherz kept his guns going even after the nose of the Junkers began to fall back towards earth. Suddenly the gunfire ended, the drums were empty. Three 
20mm MGFF cannons were fitted in the nose of Lovenherz Junker 88R. In sequence of threes, there was a thin cased shell containing 19.5 grams of hexagon A1 high-explosive, feeling an explosive armor-piercing shell with a reinforced point and an incendiary that burned at a temperature between 2,000 and 3,000 degrees centigrade for nearly one second. Each cannon was firing at the rate of 520 rounds per minute and was fed by a drum containing 60 rounds. So in seven seconds, all of the cannon drums were empty and 180 shells had been fired at the Volkswagen. Volkswagen was the term the Germans used for the British bombers, their code word. The target measured 300 square feet and 38 struck the aeroplane. Theoretically, 20 shells would have constituted an average lethal blow. That was how Lowenhertz saw the encounter. Lynn Dayton then describes what happened inside the Lancaster bomber, how the crew would have experienced being hit by these 38 20mm cannon rounds. Now just imagine that this was Vic Trimble's crew on the receiving end in that encounter that he described if things had gone badly. My legs! screamed Fleming. God help me! Mother! 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 It was an almost universal experience of war that the very young men who made up the bulk of the fighting men in all armies when seriously wounded, and especially when dying, called out for their mothers. They were, after all, only boys. The first shell that penetrated the aircraft came through the forward hatch, missing the bomb aimer by only an inch. It exploded on contact with the front turret mounting ring. It dislocated the turret, severed the throttle and rudder controls burst the compressed air tank and broke open the window spray of glycol container. In the airstream, the coolant atomized into a cloud of white mist. One twenty-sixth of a second later, the second shell came through the bomb compartment and exploded under the floor of the navigator's position. In the mysterious manner of explosions, it sucked the navigator downwards, while blowing the astrodome and the wireless operator standing underneath it out into the night, unharmed, although without his parachute. Three shells, one high-explosive, one armour-piercing and one incendiary, exploded in glancing contact with the starboard, that's the right, fuselage, exterior, immediately to the rear of the mid-upper turret. Now, in Vic Trimble's plane, that would have been Roy McNaughton, the author's father. Apart from mortally harming the gunner, the explosion of the HE shell fractured the metal formers at a place where, after manufacture, the rear part of the fuselage is bolted on. The incendiary shell completed the severance. A structural bisection of the Volkswagen occurred one and a half minutes later and 2,000 feet lower. 
Long before this, another high-explosive shell passed through the elevator hinge bracket on the tail and blew part of the servo trim tab assembly into the rear turret with such force that it decapitated the rear gunner. Those six hits were the most telling. But there were 32 others. Some ricocheted off the engines and wings and penetrated the fuselage almost horizontally. He, and that is Fleming the pilot, couldn't hold her. He couldn't. Oh dear God, his arms and legs dropping through the night like the paper aeroplane. I'm sorry, chaps, he shouted, for he felt a terrible sense of guilt. Involuntarily his bowels and bladder relaxed and he felt himself befouled. I'm sorry! It was no use for Fleming to scream. Apologies, there was no one aboard to hear him. He outlived any of his crew, for from 16,000 feet, the wireless operator, falling at 195 kilometres per hour, the terminal velocity for his weight, reached the ground 90 seconds later. He made an indentation 30 centimetres deep. This represented a deceleration equivalent to 450 times the force of gravity. He split open like a slaughtered animal and died instantly. Fleming, still strapped into the pilot's seat and aghast at his incontinence, hit the earth along with the front of the fuselage, two Rolls-Royce engines and most of the main spar some four minutes after that. To him... It seemed like four hours. The top German night fighter ace of the war was Major Heinz Wolfgang Schnaufer. He was credited with shooting down 121 British bombers, most probably Lancasters. His greatest success, remarkably, came on the night of 21 February 1945, when the war was well and truly winding down and when the Luftwaffe had mostly ceased to exist. That night, he shot down nine Lancaster bombers, seven in 19 minutes. That would have resulted in 63 men being killed. What were the consequences of being shot down by a night fighter compared to anti-aircraft artillery? Well, in my last program, I told you that there were different survival rates for the crews of Lancaster bombers compared to the British Halifax bombers. Certainly you had a better chance of parachuting to safety from a Halifax bomber compared to a Lancaster. But I think these figures relate to planes that were hit and brought down by enemy anti-aircraft fire. For a lot of planes that were brought down by anti-aircraft fire, there was no instantaneous end. The plane very rarely just blew up. More likely damage was suffered, which would cause the plane to crash sometimes sooner than later. The crew often had the opportunity and the time to take steps to bail out to safety. With the night fighter, from the description I've just read to you from Len Dayton's book Bomber, the end was pretty much instantaneous. The crews undoubtedly understood the difference. So whenever one of the gunners, squinting into the dark, saw or thought that he saw the shape of a night fighter coming in for an attack on their aircraft, the man had to feel complete impending disaster. The pilot was still flying the plane in the sense that he had his hands on the controls, 
but for all practical purposes it was then the gunner who had his eyes on the enemy fighter who gave all of the orders for the manoeuvres that the plane had to make to throw the fighter off, making a successful attack. So when Don's dad was screaming out in his sleep, Corkscrew! He'd been transported back into his mid-upper gunner's station and was looking with horror at the rapidly approaching shape of a German night fighter, looking for all the world like a porcupine, with radar antennae all over the front of the aircraft, and often with 20mm cannons, configured in what was called Schräg music, literally jazz music position. That meant that the cannons pointed upwards and sloped forward, so that they could rake the bomber from front to back. For Don's dad, until the day that he died, whenever he entered the dark realm of sleep, the natural home of the German night fighter, there was always going to be the chance of another night fighter emerging from that darkness, ready to bring death to him and the members of his crew. Our veterans from all the wars that Australia has fought in, the ones who have had to fight for their lives, can never leave the war entirely behind. I heard a story just the other day about a young man spreading the word of God in Scotland during the Great Depression, probably the early 1930s. He was tramping through a lonely part of the countryside. He knocked at the door of a cottage and a man answered the door. The young Christian started to say what he was going to say, but was cut short by the man. I served in the trenches during the Great War. What I saw there made me stop believing in God. The young man paused and said, If I had seen what you saw, I would have stopped believing in man. The old man, tears welling up in his eyes, said, You'd better come in. There was another way that your plane could be brought down by the Germans. Anti-aircraft guns were the other principal weapons used to shoot down British bombers. From the bomber's point of view, probably the preferable way than being brought down by a night fighter. Maybe anti-aircraft fire could at least damage the plane. Kill or wound some crew members on board, make the pilot bombardier cautious enough to drop their bombs early or late and miss their target so that no or minimal damage was done to the important target that the bombers were supposed to attack. One of the most efficient ways for searchlights to lock onto a British bomber and bring it down was using a system of a cone of searchlights. One searchlight, a 200 centimetre master searchlight, would lock onto a target. Three other searchlights would work in synchronisation with it. They would then be aimed at the aircraft. If you did trigonometry at school, you'll know that this would let the Germans know the precise height of their target, making their fire all the more accurate and lethal. Don McNaughton in his book, Lucky Pommy Bastard, gives this account of the mission when this happened to his dad's plane. On their fourth trip, a raid on Hanover, they did not encounter night fighters, but were coned by searchlights, including a 200cm master searchlight, controlling three other searchlights, to triangulate the aircraft's position. Once isolated by multiple searchlights, escape was extremely difficult, 
and radar-controlled flak quickly focused in on the single aircraft trapped in the multiple beams. The intense light beams also blinded the pilot and his crew, making control difficult. Often aircraft coned over the target where the flak was thick were destroyed. So their escape, which cost them 8,000 feet of height, can probably be put down to a combination of luck and the excellent flying skills of Vic Trimble. Their escape was achieved by putting the plane into a very steep dive that might throw off the searchlights and save the plane. On this occasion, it did. Sometimes, it didn't. The risk in diving was that you would collide with another bomber flying below you. What it was like when you finished a mission, crashed on your bunk and then woke up next morning to find that some of your friend's bunks from another bomber were still empty was part of the tragedy and the pain suffered by these crews throughout the war. How did men cope with this constant death around them? Don McNaughton gives us this insight in his book, Lucky Pommy Bastard. The initial thought on learning of a crew not returning was, thank God it wasn't us, followed closely by a deep sadness when those who had bought it, which is a World War II term meaning killed, were close friends. Many crews purposely isolated themselves from all other crews after seeing a number of close friends not return, essentially cushioning themselves so that they would not be so badly affected by the constant loss of the crews around them. This action resulted in even tighter crew friendships that kept other crews at a distance and made for even stronger bonds between the seven men who relied so heavily on each other. In my next program, I'm going to take you on a bombing mission with Vic Trimble and his crew. Thanks for joining me, Paul, in The Danger Zone. If you liked this program, you'll definitely love my other program, the crazily named C-Y-K-I-A-E.